Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Let's stand to our feet as we prepare to worship the Lord through song. I want to encourage you this morning by reading Psalm 89. Psalm 89 says this, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. This morning, we get the opportunity to do that right here in this room. From young to old, from old to young, we get the opportunity to remember and to tell of God's faithfulness from one generation to the next. And so let's take advantage of this time that we have to sing to the Lord of how he saved our souls and how he's given us new life. Amen? All right, let's sing. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you saved my soul. God, we will remember all that you've done for us. Sing, I was lost. I was lost when you came for me, held in chains by the enemy, but you broke them in victory now i'm free i am free you're my joy and you are my hope i am saved by your grace alone sing of your love for me i am free i am free you my god have saved my soul i am yours forevermore I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you saved my soul. Now I stand with the King of Kings. He has paid for my every sin. And from now through eternity, I am free. I am free. God have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you saved my soul. What once was dead is now you gave to me the breath of life. You brought me up out from the grave. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. What once was dead is now alive. You gave to me the breath of life. You brought me up out from the grave. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. Let's sing. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you save my soul. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am your 
yours forevermore. I won't be moved over this, I'm sure. You are my God and you saved my soul. God, help us remember all that you've done for us. May we never forget. Amen. Can we sing that chorus one more time? And you, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you saved my soul. Amen. All praise, all glory, all honor to you from now to eternity, forever and ever. May your praise be on our lips and our hearts. God, help us to focus on you this morning as we sing your praise. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near. Praise him in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires there have been? Granted in what he ordained. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. To the Lord, oh, let all that is in me adore Him. All that hath life and breath come now with praises before Him. Let the Amen sound from His people again. Gladly forever we adore Him. Let the Amen sound from His people again, gladly forever. 
adore Him. Hallelujah. 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 Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. to University Baptist Church. I am Becky Beiser and just so delighted you are here. I see many of my brothers and sisters and I see some guests that are with us today. Santosh, man, praise God, you got your family here. Woohoo! Welcome. Welcome. We feel like you're already part of us, okay? I know you haven't been here in Santosh. We've been praying and just welcome so delighted you're here. Others that chose to come and be with us today, thank you. We are here to praise our Father in heaven. It's all about worshiping Him today. So I hope that you will position yourselves in this service just to hear the Lord and to praise Him, praise His name for all the good things He has done for you probably throughout your life, but even this week. I know Santosh can feel the Lord so greatly and I'm sure his wife and kids, too, of how he, he brought them here. Uh, if you are a guest with us, we have some cards in the pews you could fill out. Or if you look on your worship guide, you can text the word guest to 817-952-5383 and fill out information. We would love to know about you being here with us. And then I also wanted to just highlight a couple of things on your worship guide, some things that you might be interested in. One thing that is happening Wednesday the 18th at 6 is a Right Now Media Info Session. And so this is something that you can, you can get to free, you can use. It's a great resource. You're going to learn all about it. There's lots of videos, things that can be used for your whole family. And so if that's something you would like to just come on Wednesday at 6, and then ladies, if you like to play games, and you like to play games with other ladies and get to visit and talk, on Thursday night is the ladies game night. Women to Women is hosting this at 6.30 in Harris Hall. It's $5 at the door, and just you're going to have snacks, and you can just have a lot of fun. Uh, but we're just delighted everyone chose to be with us. Children, if y'all would make your way up with, to be with Miss Trish in just a few moments, and then if you would stand and just greet those around you. We just appreciate y'all being with us today. Thank you.
All right, you can go ahead and make your way back to your seats and go ahead and have a seat. And Ms. Trisha Ryan's going to lead us in our children's time this morning. Good morning, friends. Can everybody see what I brought today? Water. Okay, so some of our friends out in the congregation, they might not see what's drawn on my pitcher of water. What's drawn on my pitcher of water? A heart is drawn on my pitcher of water. So what we're going to do today is I want you guys to think of this as our heart. And it's filled up with the goodness of God. Do you see how full it is? So when you think about the goodness of God, we think about what, why we put God first in our life. Well, he's our creator. He loves us. He brings us joy. He answers our prayer. He gives us peace. He gives us strength. He gives us courage. So all of these things he fills up with our heart, into our heart, right? So we can live. But sometimes our time and attention gets taken away from us with other things. So what's some things that take your time? What are some things that take your time? Um, I had to go to school and it lasts about, it starts like really early in the morning and it ends at three. School takes our time. And this wasn't what I thought, because this isn't where I'm going with this, but it does take our time. So maybe we can also say school takes our time and maybe worry about school takes our time. What else takes up our time? I'm working on your phone, like playing games on it. Phone, games take up our time. Luke, what takes up your time? Homework, Homework takes up your time. Again, totally di different way to go. What else, Hudson? Playing takes up our time. What else, Riley? Reading takes up our time. So maybe some of these things, our phone, our videos, we'll leave school out because school is important. But some of these things are important too, right? Reading is important. Phones are important. We can use our phones. Those are resources that we can use. But sometimes those things take up our time too much. And so if we think of this as maybe our phone. Let's see what happens to it when we drop it in our heart. What happened? A little bit of the goodness comes out, right? So what about TV? Do you guys like watching TV? What happens? The water keeps coming out. What about our video games? Do you guys like video games? I didn't hear you guys say anything of that. Okay, video games. Ooh. What about reading books? Reading isn't a bad thing, is it? I'm always encouraging my kids to read. But what if it's taking our time and attention away from God? What happens? So does our water overflow? And you know what? If we keep thinking about those things and keep putting rocks in here, pretty soon the water will continue to overflow and all of the goodness that was in our hearts before that is going away. Why is the goodness going away? Why, Natalie? That's right. There's not enough room for God when we add all these other things to it. And so when Jeremiah, Pastor Jeremiah, he's talking about idols for the next few weeks, those idols, if they are taking a time and attention away from God, they're filling up our hearts. And all of the goodness that God is giving us in our hearts, they're taking that away from us. So we need to focus back on God, right, and continue to 
look at the Bible and read his word, come to Sunday school, listen to Pastor Jeremiah in the service and worship and praise him. And then all that water or all that goodness will come back into our hearts, okay? Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, you are good and we love you. Thank you for each of these who are here today. May you bless them. May you help them to be mindful of you. May they bring you worship and praise, and may they constantly seek you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we continue in worship. Couldn't help but be reminded of Psalm 95 as they were singing that song. I just want to read it for you just to kind of encourage you. 
and myself as well. Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That's literally what the choir just sang. Sing joyful praise. That's what we were doing. That's what we've come here to do together. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Do we ever have, we have so much stuff to be thankful for. We have so many things to be thankful for. Our God has blessed us beyond all measure. And we've come to sing about those things. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? For the Lord is a great God. He is a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? For he is our God, and we're his people, the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. We are his church. We are his sons, and we are his daughters, and we have come here to sing and to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So let's sing of his worth and his glory this morning. O church of Christ, O church of Christ invincible, let's sing. O church of Christ invincible, the people of the Lord, empowered by the Spirit's breath, and nourished by his word his covenant of grace will be our portion nevermore for he who called us will not change our help and our reward surely you are a great god oh chosen people called by grace the sons of Abraham who walk by faith in things unseen and on his promise stand that every nation of the earth will hear of boundless love that causes broken hearts to heal and pays our debts with blood. We have a reason to sing we have a reason to rejoice. Even in sorrow, O church of Christ, in sorrow now, where evil lies in wait, when trials and persecutions come, this light will never fade. For though the hordes of hell may rage, their power will not endure our times are in the father's hands what assurance our anchor is secure only in him let's sing this together O church of christ upon that day when all are gathered when every tear is wiped away 
with every trace of sin where justice truth and beauty shine and death has passed away where god and man will dwell as one for all eternity this is the hope of our salvation Mine are tears. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need i know my pain will not be wasted christ completes his work in me mine are days here as a stranger Pilgrim on a narrow way One with Christ I will encounter Harm and hatred for His name But mine is armor for this battle Strong enough to last the war And He has said He deliver safely to the golden shore and mine are keys to Zion city where beside the king I walk for there my heart has found its treasure Christ is mine forever And think about that. No matter what you do, Christ is yours. No matter what you've done, Christ is yours. So rejoice. 
Come rejoice now, O oh my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O oh my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and so be sure. Christ is mine forevermore. See, now one more time. Come rejoice now, O oh my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. One more time. Christ is mine forevermore. Amen. You may be seated. And someday I'm just going to tell you all to keep singing, and I'm not even going to preach. We're just going to keep worshiping. Man, that was awesome. What a, what a joy to be able to come in and just sing praises to our God like that, and to celebrate such a truth, right, that fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is ours forevermore. What a, what a glorious thing for us to declare. That's why we gather. That's why we're here. And I want to read to you as we begin today. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38, it reads, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we ask that your spirit would guide us and fill this room, that you would lead us in a way that helps us to see the glory of the risen King. Father, that we can surrender the distractions in our life, we can, we can confess the idols that lead us astray, and we can choose what is better, to walk beside our King in Zion City, to declare that you are ours forevermore, and to reveal with our lives a devotion and a praise and a worship to you. This is our desire. This is why we gather. This is the time that we commit to you in spirit and in truth, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. So last week we began a series that we've titled Worthless Worship. And it's a series that's designed to take us into a more intentional look into the problem of idolatry. 
And when we have this discussion, last week kind of served as a little bit of an introduction, a little bit of a context to this, to this narrative. And as we began this, we, we started with a question that I want to revisit again this morning. Because in order for us to really be able to, to think through the issue of idolatry, one of the key questions that we have to ask ourselves is, is one that gives us perspective and context to why it is so critical to consider. And so let me ask you again uh, a simple question. Why are you here? And, and I don't mean necessarily why are you here, like in this church at this moment, but why are we here? Or why, why do you exist? What's the meaning? What's the purpose for life? What are you designed to do? All right, this is the question that really shapes everything. And we, we wrestled with that question extensively last week by starting with Genesis chapter 1. See, what we believe, and what I want to remind each and every one of you that is here this morning, is, is a very simple and powerful truth. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single one of you. All right now, let's not forget that. Because you're going to have these voices that come inside your head that come into your own life that begin to tell you and remind you of your imperfections, that remind you of your failures. You're going to hear these voices from the world around you, right? Friends or the culture that's going to convince you of who you need to be and what you need to be. And all these things are going to try to distract you from this beautiful promise, this beautiful reality that, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single one of you. And what we discover in Genesis chapter 1 is that, that we were designed for a purpose, we were made for a particular um, function, created with a certain intent, that, that you and I are created in the image of God. And the reason that we're here is to reflect that image, to reveal that image, right? That we are image bearers, that very simply the reason we are here is for worship. And that's more than just singing and coming to church. That's what the very expression of our lives, the whole reason we exist is to reveal our creator, that's why we've been designed. That's why we're here. Now, the problem is that many of us will go through life and these impulses that we have towards worship get distorted, right? Romans chapter one explains it very clearly that though we knew God, we neither gave thanks to him nor glorified him as God, but rather we exchanged the glory of an immortal God for created things. And so what happens is, is we go through life and we put our devotion, we put our affections, we put our attention to all these other things. We put it towards money, we put it towards relationships, we put it towards careers, we put it to all these other things, and we find ourselves worshiping or devoting ourselves to something that is less than our creator. And when that happens, our lives become less than what they were designed to be. That's the problem of idolatry. And so we began this discussion by walking through this biblical history of idolatry, seeing how it's kind of revealed itself throughout the pages of scriptures until we kind of ultimately arrived at that, that moment in 2 Kings 17 that gives us a really comprehensive summary. It allowed us to look at the elements of idolatry. It allowed us to look at the, the heart behind idolatry, the response that the Lord has towards us when we choose such a rebellion. And we, we kind of arrived at this summarization, this, this summary verse that we find in 2 Kings 17 when it says, they worshiped worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. This is the allure of idolatry, right? It robs us of what we were created to be and what it is that we were created to do. And that's, that's what we begin to wrestle with, right? It, it empties us of our value. Now, the problem that we have whenever we begin a conversation with idolatry is it sounds like an ancient concept, doesn't it? Right? It sounds like something in the distant past. It kind of has that ancient ring to it. It's almost as if I said, hey, do you know what a rotary phone is? 
You can say, sure, I know what a rotary phone is. It's something that used to happen a long time ago, right? But it's not applicable anymore. That's, that's what we think of with idolatry. Oh, yeah, I know what it is. It's something that, that people used to fall victim to. And so as a result, we don't take it seriously as much as we should. But let me begin this morning by reminding each of you that are here today, idolatry is alive and well. And I don't mean in some kind of unique form that's manifest itself. I mean literally the practice of idolatry. There are billions of people on this planet that literally bow down and worship statues. That, that worship structures, that worship sculptures made by human hands. It is absolutely a relevant problem. Now in our context, sure, here in Texas, here in the South, it is more camouflaged. Right? It's, it's something that is often more indiscreet, something that requires more attention and more detail in order for us to unearth. And so that's, that's one of the things that I want us to acknowledge, is that though it is camouflaged, it is absolutely alive and well. And so a couple of disclaimers as we begin this, this series today is that first and foremost, because it's, it is difficult in some ways for us to identify, um, I'm going to have to take a little bit more time to to pinpoint these areas of idolatry, make sure that we understand it and see its impact, which means it's gonna take a little bit before I get back to the text, okay? So hang with me, but I feel like that's, that's important for us to do in order for us to understand it and the impact that it has on us. The, the second disclaimer that I wanna have as we begin this morning is uh, in no way do I hope that this series or this morning is presented with any sort of condescending tone. Okay, that is not my intent. If anything, it's confessional. Okay, now yes, we're gonna call some things out. We're, we're gonna hold each other accountable to some things. We're, we're gonna have to judge some things. But hear me, I sit in the pew with you, okay? Uh, these things that we're gonna go through today and next week and the week after, uh, I have by no means mastered. I am guilty of them more than anyone, okay? So, so know that. But, but when we begin today, here's how I wanna introduce this subject. I wanna start with a more broad concept that really hopefully gets to the heart of what we're talking about. And here's what I want to do. I want to read to you an excerpt from the Screwtape Letters, uh, written by C.S. Lewis. And if, if you're unfamiliar with C.S. Lewis, I highly recommend that you go home and research and Google his journey from being an atheist to a believer and one of the most influential authors that we have within our lifetime. Incredible contributions and giving us wonderful insight to consider. And, and there's a perspective from the Screwtape Letters I want to read to you this morning. And, and here's what's unique about this book. It's written as if it's uh, a series of letters that are being uh, composed from one demon to another. Okay, so it's, it's, it's as if we're getting kind of an interesting take and perspective on, on the tactics that the devil would employ to lead God's people astray. So you read these letters, and it's almost like you're being taken behind enemy lines and seeing their, their strategies and their tactics for the enemy. It's almost like we're being invited into the huddle to hear the next play call. I had to throw in a sports analogy, right? But that, that's, that's what it is. And so when I, when I read this to you, I want you to understand it from that perspective. This is as if one demon is talking to another about how they can lead God's people astray. It says, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A call of him advertisements and yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. 
And you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I read that excerpt to you this morning because part of the, the challenge we have with idolatry is a lot of times we view it as just this outright rebellion, right? This egregious offense against God. But good idols lure us in. They seem innocent. They seem um, good. And they put us on this gradual road of disobedience without us even knowing it, right? What he's really talking about there with that wandering attention, that wasted time, or the things in our life that distract us from being the person that we were created to be that distract us from worshiping God and reflecting his image as he desires us to. It's the issue of distraction. Now, I'm gonna get to a specific item here in just a moment, but here's where I want us to begin. I want you to ask yourself, what is it in your life that distracts you from living and worshiping God as he's desired you to? What are those things that steal your attention away? What are those things in your life that cause you to waste time and deviate from what it is that he's asked you to do? I want you to reflect on that. I want you to ask those questions. I want you to identify it and be willing to surrender it today so that you can rediscover the worship that he has given us, that we can always understand that when those moments of distraction come, that implies a choice, right? That there is a path that he wants wants us to walk, but every once in a while something comes in that deviates our attention, that takes our mind off of it, and when that happens, we can either choose to follow that path or we can choose to pursue the distraction. The message of today is that whatever it is that distracts us, in that moment when we're given that choice, we must choose what is better. We must always choose our king. And so here's, here's the issue I want to talk about today. I want to start with a survey, okay? And so I just, I need you to be honest, all right? Safe place, okay? No big deal. Um, but with a show of hands, here's what I'm curious about. How many people here today, raise your hand, if you have a smartphone that is within reach, meaning you have one in your pocket, in your purse, Okay, raise your hand if you don't. Okay, in case you couldn't see it, the vast majority of this congregation has this thing right here. And this is our first idol that we're gonna talk about today. Now granted, we are gonna spend some time focusing in on the smartphone, but it really is representative, almost emblematic of technology as a whole and the way in which technology distracts us and leads us astray from the things that we've been created to do. Now, a couple of things that I want to offer about this conversation. First of all, I've got several books with me and, and a couple that I would recommend on this topic. The first one is The Big Disconnect, which is written by Katherine Steiner Adair. Uh, this is not a faith-based book. This is more written from a clinical perspective, but I highly recommend it. Read it a couple years ago. Absolutely changed my perspective on so many different things related to technology. Uh, it really focuses on how technology is impacting relationships, in particular the home and family. It talks about the developmental impact on children from infancy into young adulthood and in the way that parents are using it. It's, it's a great book and very thought-provoking. Another one that I would recommend is written by Andy Crouch, and it's The TechWise Family. This one is written from a faith-based perspective. And, and again, just very practical, a lot of great suggestions in this book. I would recommend you grab this one. He gives you some really good things to think through. Uh, and I'll reference him and some of those suggestions later in the message. Now, the other thing I need you to know is that I'm about to, to do my best to, to capture a, a lot of data, a lot of research, a lot of statistics uh, in as hopefully as succinct manner as possible. 
And, and so here's what I'm going to do for sake of time and just clarity and understanding. Rather than cite every magazine, every author, every date, just know that if you want that detail, I can give it to you. If you want more information, because I'm going to try to be a little bit more condensed and succinct here, I can give you more. But, but a lot of what I'm sharing with you today is, is the result of researching and reading through numerous articles over the years that I've just kind of saved and compiled as I've thought about this topic, Okay. So, so that being said, the, the way in which I want us to work through the issue of technology is to start by acknowledging kind of the proliferation of technology in our society, uh, how it's kind of worked its way into our existence and our function, and then we'll see the science behind it, the impact that it's having on us, and then eventually look at some practical suggestions to try to rein those things in, and then we'll return to the biblical structure that needs to, to frame the conversation. So as I read that story of Mary and Martha, I want that to be the framework in which this, this discussion this morning takes place, okay? So keep that in the back of your minds, and we'll get there towards the end. Um, here's the first thing I want you to see. Cell phones, uh, smartphones are everywhere. Technology is everywhere, right? The, the survey represented that. Nine out of 10 Americans have access to the web, to the internet, okay? 90% have regular access to the internet. Almost 80% have a smartphone, 80% of people in our country. So it is it is everywhere. For 18 to 29-year-olds, it's well over 90% that have a smartphone device. And so it is, it is absolutely prolific within our society. And what we've seen is that it is not contingent upon uh, socioeconomic background, how rich or how poor you are. It's not about the race that you have or your ethnicity. It's not about your education level. It's not about where you live. Everywhere people have these devices. Now, proliferation doesn't equate to idolatry. Right? I mean, just because they're everywhere doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I mean, if I asked, who has a T-shirt? Everybody would raise their hand, right? But it doesn't make T-shirts evil. What, what is so alarming is not just how prolific they are, but how they've worked themselves into our existence, literally defining how we connect with each other and how we view ourselves, correct? In fact, we've got some pictures that we'll just kind of cycle through now as I'm, as I'm talking that will, should hopefully look like very familiar situations to all of us. Right? What we've seen is that these devices have literally entered into our dinner table. They've entered into our relationships. They've entered into our marriages, into our parenting techniques. Right? They are absolutely a part of everything that we do. So here's some of the, the research that talks about just how prolific they've become. Uh, there was a study that was done, uh, a British survey that was done not too long ago, and indicated that for the average American, we check our phone every four and a half minutes. Every four and a half minutes, we're reaching for our phone. In a given year, there are more than 4,000 times that we reach for our phone for no reason whatsoever, just out of com compulsion, just out of habit, right? And so we're, we're checking it every four and a half minutes, and uh, when you look at the, the overall use of it, uh, for teens in particular, it is the activity that they do uh, more than any other activity other than sleeping, Right? So they are on it more than any other time, any other thing, it is for sleeping. Now, for the rest of us, 84%, 84% of Americans have indicated they can't go a single day without their phone. Not one single day without their phone. And so we have this, this constant use of it, and it's impacting us in every segment of society. We're seeing it in the car, right? Two out of three Americans will check their phone while driving, despite the fact that it is proven to, to almost equate, if not be worse, than driving under the influence. And accidents are, are beginning to climb again for the first time in, in a while. All right, we see it in how people are parenting. Right? Children are now just given these devices, and, and these are actually now tools now to help us get through parenting because we think it's giving our children downtime. 
And it's the exact opposite. It's, it's not giving them any downtime. It's actually filled with stimulation, hyperactivity that creates all this anxiety within them, and yet we think it's helping them. And really, the reason we're giving it is not so that it helps them, but because it helps us. Right? It gives us a little bit of a break. So it's changing how we parent. It's changing how we drive. 84% can go a day without it. One study that I saw compiled all this information and realized that if you put all that together, that means the average American will, get, will spend seven years of their life on their device. Seven years. You know what you can do in seven years? A lot. Like get a PhD, at least, maybe two or something. I, mean, I don't know, right? I mean, it is amazing the amount of time that we're spending on these devices. It's incredible how much time we're spending on these devices. Now, it's, it shouldn't be that remarkable, though, because the science behind it is geared this way, right? In fact, if you begin to look at some of the alarming uh, comments that are being made by these ex- executives that are coming from Google and Apple and Facebook and others, they are beginning to sound the alarm about how these things were engineered, right? So think about the progression, okay? The internet more or less is free, right? Like, yes, we, we pay for the service to provide it. We pay for our phones, our data plans. But, but like when you search Google and you get online, like it's not charging you to use their website, right? Most social media platforms are not charging you to use their site, correct? So it's a free enterprise. And so how do they make money? Well, they make money by convincing advertisers that you're going to go to their site more frequently and longer than any other site. And so that's what they're after. They want to convince you to keep coming back. And so they are intentionally trying to tap into the addictive qualities that all of us carry. In fact, the guy that developed the push notifications for Apple said that we were trying to tap into the same neurological transmitters that are engaged when somebody sits down to gamble or to use drugs. Right? So it, it is intentionally designed. Let me just explain this to you. They don't care about your well-being. Right, that one, one engineer from Apple was given the iPhone before it was released, the most recent one, to make sure that it was still easy enough to use while driving. So he could test drive it, right? And, and so they're not worried about your safety on the road. They wanna make sure that you can use this as much as possible. They tap into these sociological insecurities that we have, right? Like we all know that sociologically, we, we wanna feel affirmed. We need community, we need confirmation and affirmation. Well, Instagram plays on that. Here's what they do. When you post something on Instagram, let's say it gets 30 likes, they won't tell you that right away. Right? They'll, 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 they'll have you check, and it'll only show 10 likes, hoping that you're disappointed so that you'll come back and check in about four minutes. And then they'll show you 15, and then they'll show you 20. So they can just have you keep coming back and back and back over and over and over again. They do this intentionally. Consider this one quote from this executive, Sean Parker, who is the ex-president of Facebook. He recently admitted that the world bestriding social media platform was designed to hook users with spurts of dopamine, a complicated neurotransmitter released when the brain expects a reward or accrues fresh knowledge. He says, quote, you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The investors understood this consciously, and we did it anyway. Right? They are intentionally designing these things to be addictive. Right? And, it's, and it's not a surprise to us. Okay? We are literally carrying around these things that are generated and engineered to engage those addictive elements within us so that they can make more money, right? And so naturally, we use them off the charts, as we've already said. So the question then becomes, what's the impact of this constant use? Well, there are numerous things that we could dive into, its impact on cognitive abilities, all these other elements, but what I wanna focus in on is the breakdown of social relationships. Here's what's interesting, right? Here's the allure of the device. Here's the allure of technology, right? Constant connectivity. You can connect with anyone, anytime, anywhere, right? 
It's supposed to enhance these connections and these relationships. Ironically, as we have had this technological development that is supposed to create all this connectivity, you know what else has increased? Loneliness. Yeah, Harvard Business Review reports that now 40% of Americans report feeling, feeling lonely. And since 1985, the number of people that report having zero close friends has tripled. And this needs to be problematic because loneliness has an actual impact on our lives. If feelings of loneliness increase, your risk of early death by 26%. When that loneliness equates to social isolation, it goes to 29%. When it goes up to living alone, it goes up to 32%. And every single one of these studies that look into loneliness gets what's a factor. Technology. Your phone, because it gives you this sense of, oh, I'm connecting, but you're connecting in such a superficial way that it actually makes you feel more empty than actually fulfilled. And so it's having this impact on loneliness. Now, now all of us feel this in some way. Now, every generation has adapted to this technology in some capacity, right? Um, my generation in particular, like I remember a time where I didn't have a cell phone. And, and then I remember like the first cell phones and the only game you could play was Snake, right? And, and you didn't text a whole lot because it took you 10 minutes to type thank you. You know, I mean, Jake, you know, I mean, it was miserable, right? And, and so I've adapted to it, and so I still have these addictive qualities, but if we were going to really use a case study to see just how damaging technology can be, we shouldn't look at the generations that have adapted. We should look at the generation that has had it from the very beginning, the I generation. And, and I came across an article about a year ago that was written by The Atlantic, and the title was, Are We Destroying a Generation? And it was really amazing the details that they found within this study. Let's start with the social breakdowns. Teenagers today, seniors in high school are less social than, uh, seniors in 2015 are less social than eighth graders were in 2009. Okay, so your social life as an eighth grader was better than a senior in high school, just in about a nine-year difference. Okay, now not only that, you see that through just typical ways in which teens connect, like dating. Uh, teenagers today are only dating around 56%. That may seem like a lot, but when compared to boomers and Gen Xers, it was as high as 85%. So it is on a sharp decline. In 2000 to 2015, the reports of, of people that have, uh, have stopped hanging out with their friends on a daily basis, it has gone by 40%. 40% decline in people hanging out on a regular basis with their friends. So this social, social isolation is, is growing increasingly with these kids. And so the question might be, oh, okay, well, they're busier with homework. They've got more activities. Wrong. All the studies show that homework is actually less than previous generations, and activities are the same. So if anything, they have more leisure time. So what are they doing? They're at home, in their rooms, on their phones, or their iPad, or some device. And so here's what becomes chilling about that is the impact that it's having. The National, Drug, uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse has done a survey uh, for, for teenagers since 1975. And as technology developed, they started integrating these questions about technology. And here's what they discovered. Uh, teenagers, the more likely you are to spend time online or on a device, the more likely you are to report feeling unhappy, without exception. So, so literally, the more time you spend, the more unhappy you feel. For teens today. And so unhappiness then leads to loneliness. And this loneliness leads to depression. Consider some of these statistics of depression facing our teenagers today. The more time teens spend on screens, the more likely they are to report symptoms of depression. 
Eighth graders who are heavy users of social media increase the risk of depression by 27%. Boys' depressive symptoms increased by 21% from 2012 to 2015. Three years, 21% increase. You think that's good? You know what it increased for girls? 50%. 50% increase in girls with experiences and symptoms of depression from just 2012 to 2015. Teens who spend three hours a day or more on electronic devices are 35% more likely to have a risk factor for suicide. And it's the number one activity that they're doing besides sleeping. In 2011, for the first time in 24 years, the teen suicide rate was higher than the teen homicide rate. It has skyrocketed, which is what has led this author to, to say in the beginning of an article, it's not an exaggeration to describe the iGeneration as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. And much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. It's a good case study for us, right? When it is always with us and given to a generation, that's the sort of impact that it's having. This is what idolatry does. It offers, it asks for more and more while giving less and less until it demands everything and gives nothing. And that's the progression that we're on. And we've bought into it. Oh, it's connecting us. It's making us feel better. But in the inside, it's really making us feel more disconnected and more lonely, more isolated, which is leading to greater depression and greater risk for suicide until it costs somebody everything. And so we all have to take this seriously. Right? We need to give greater consideration to it. And we know that it's not just teenagers, it's all of us that are falling victim to it in some capacity, in some way. And so we need to put these safeguards around us. A couple of, of practical suggestions that I, I really loved from, from Andy Crouch's book is, is all of these authors say, listen, technology is not evil. We're not saying, like, just throw it out completely. We're not going to have a smartphone burning here today, right? I mean, like, there's still a healthy way to use it, but you need guidelines. And so one of the guidelines he recommended that I thought was great was uh, an hour a day, a day a week, a week a year. Be tech-free. So every day they took dinner time, and it's tech-free. We don't use our phones at dinner time. That's your hour. Every week they take Sundays. No devices. Put them aside. That's your tech-free day. And then one week a year when they go out on a family vacation, they leave their technology at home. Tech-free. A day, an hour a day, a day a week, a week a year. Pretty good. Jennifer and I have had some pretty honest conversations about this because we've seen the way that it's impacted our relationship. We've seen the way that it's impacted our home. So we've tried to come up with some things really just the last couple of weeks that we're trying to hold ourselves accountable to. Right? We, again, we want to have the dinner table, uh, any meal that we have with our family tech-free. Right? Just, just leave it off. Uh, we don't want the bedroom to be a place for a smartphone, period. Right? You, it, not just for our kids, for us. Right? And so if we need it to, to wake up, then plug it into the bathroom. We don't want to be that couple that falls asleep doing this. And that that's the last thing we remember and the first thing we do when we wake up. We want it not to be used in our cars. I actually told my kids this week, I said, all right, every time I get in the car, I ask you to buckle up. You tell me, dad is the cell phone in the glove compartment. And my kids are starting to do it. It's really good. Really good accountability partners, right? So we need to put in these practical guidelines to help us guard against this stuff. Because here's what we're seeing. Here's the quote that I want to use to transition us back to the scripture. Here's this quote that I thought put it in really succinct and in a, in, a, in a meaningful way. It says, the lesson we're slowly beginning to learn is that these devices are not a harmless vice. Use the way we currently use them. Smartphones keep us from being our best selves. See, that's what we need to understand is this is the distraction that's keeping us from being our best. That's keeping us from being what we were designed to do. So much wasted time. 
so much of us drawing our attention to all these other things. And that's where this story of Mary and Martha, to me, gives us this, this biblical framework to really understand this from a healthy way. Right? How does that story begin? If you remember how we read it a second ago, it begins with Martha welcoming Jesus into her home. And that's what I want us to understand. Is see, Martha, she had heard about Jesus. This was early on in his ministry, but obviously she had paid attention. Right? She knew who he was. She knew what he was claiming to do. So she had this concept of Jesus, and so she didn't want to miss the opportunity to be with him, so she invited him in. Let me explain something to you. The first step to conquering any idol is understanding who Jesus is and inviting him into your life. There is no step beyond idolatry without that first one. Right? We have to understand who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, understand this gospel, and then invite it into our home, invite it into our lives, and let it sit among us and dwell with us and transform us. Without that, there is no hope over idolatry. It all begins with Jesus. Right? That if we were created for worship, if we were created to reflect his image, we see that Jesus reveals the fullness of God and all worship is centered upon him. So that's where it begins. We invite him into our homes. We welcome him in. But the other reason I love the story is that it doesn't stop there, does it? I see, that's not sufficient. Martha welcomes him in, but then what? Distraction. And that, to me, is why this story is so applicable for our context, right? Is that a lot of us, that's what we try to do. We think welcoming him into our home is enough. It's like what we talked about last week with 2 Kings 17, right? That, that we spend this, we see this example of once people are driven from the town, they begin to worship Yahweh while also serving these other gods. See, what we want to do is we want to welcome Jesus into our lives and then we still want to distract ourselves with all these other things that we think are important. Right? So yeah, yeah, it's, Jesus is here. He's in the other room. I'm not spending any time with him, but he's here. It's good. I've got these other things I need to tend to i got these other things that I need to worry about. And so that's how we begin to cultivate our worship in this context. And it is woefully insufficient. And we are distracted. Now, what does that word distracted mean? It means worry and anxiety. She is worried. Jesus calls it out, doesn't he? He says, Martha, you are worried about many things. Now, if I, if I could give a summary and an assessment, a diagnosis of technology, that would be it. This device that is weaved its way into our life and made us worried about many things, right? We, we worry about politics more now and the things that we see, what this person tweeted and what this politician's gonna say and what this person did and, oh, I saw this article, this fake news, this, this conspiracy, that. We worry about our relationships more. We worry about the gossip that we see more. We see these pictures and we think, well, why wasn't I invited to that? Well, why are they getting to do that? And then we compare ourselves to this family over here. Then maybe we realize that this is not just a phone, but it's a gateway to all sorts of evil and destruction. And we spend some time looking at things that we shouldn't be looking at. Right? And we get exposed to things we shouldn't be exposed to. We think it's harmless. It's a giant waste of time more often than not. Right? We're distracted, and it's creating worry and anxiety about many things. See, that, that is one of the things that we, you and I have to really deal with. Maybe your issue is not the phone. Maybe it's not technology, but there's something in your life that's distracting you, something in you that's causing worry, and it chokes out the worship that we are designed to cultivate with the gospel. Right? Think about the parable of the sower. If you think about the parable of the sower, the word of God is sown into four different soils, and each soil re- responds to it in a different way. The first one rejects it completely. 
The second one has the birds of the air come and pluck it away, which is the example of, of Satan come and luring it astray. The third is that these weeds come and choke it out before the fourth soil produces a crop of a hundredfold. What are those weeds referred to? The worries of the world. All right, so what we do is we welcome Jesus in. We say, come in, come be with us. And then we give ourselves to worry and anxiety and all these things that distract us and it chokes it out of us living this worshipful life that we were designed to create and that we were designed to reflect. So we have to address this issue of worry and anxiety and these distractions. So Jesus calls it out. And it's something that we all need to ask ourselves this morning. What is it that is creating that in your life? What gives you that worry? What gives you that anxiety? What creates that distraction? See, technology is often one of the main culprits of it. And so when we identify this source of worry, we then begin to see the contrast that we have with Mary. And Mary uh, gives us the picture of, of a more appropriate response to Jesus. What does Mary do? It's very simple. She sits at his feet and listens. I love that. Right, even just the phrase, sits at his feet, you know what that, that conjures up is the posture of worship. Right, she sits at his feet, acknowledging his authority, acknowledging his supremacy, acknowledging that she needs to revere him, ex explaining this uh, posture of humility, of submission before him, right? This is a posture of worship. She knows that the most important thing for her in that moment is to worship her king, to worship this Jesus. And so she sits at his feet and she listens. <laughs> you know how hard it is for us to listen to God today? You know that one study indicates that we consume the equivalent of 174 newspapers a day. <laughs> we have so much drowning out the voice of God. One more notification, one more buzz, one more text, one more phone call, one more email. It is so hard to listen with these things in our pockets, in our purses, on our tables, right next to us. And it drowns out the voice of God. And it limits our ability to truly worship. What does Mary do? She sits and she listens. It's a reminder that listening is one of the chief characteristics that we need to cultivate. We, we come from a society that loves to, to affirm things by that which we can see. Right? We want to confirm that which can be observed. But biblically speaking, it's hearing the voice of God. It's hearing the way in which he reveals himself. That's the posture that we assume we must be able to listen and hear what it is that he has to say. And yet so much of our time is given away to these other things that distract us. And so, so Jesus calls us out. He says, you've worried about many things, but indeed there's only one thing that really matters. Only one thing that you need to focus in on. And this is where we get the perspective that I think is incredibly important. See, Martha in that moment had this distraction and she made the wrong choice. She chose these other things that were stealing her attention. And she missed not just Jesus, she missed Mary, she missed her sister. She missed the people that were in the room with her. This is what technology does to us time and time again. It has us look right past the people right in front of us as well as our king. I wanna read to you an excerpt from The Big Disconnect that I think puts this in a very sobering way. Part of the reason that this book was compelling to me is all the different interviews that she conducted with different children, different adults, and the, the testimonies that they shared that really bring it to life. And in the introduction, she interviews several children that, that talk about the impact and the way that they feel when they see their parents on their devices. And so I want to read to you just a, a quick comment from this young child, this seven-year-old girl, who ironically, her name is Annabelle. Um, 
but she talks about how it makes her feel when she sees her parents on these devices. And I think this will help summarize kind of all that we're saying. She says, in a play therapy session, seven-year-old Annabelle talks about the loneliness and distress she feels when she is unable to get her parents' attention. My parents are always on their computers and on their cell phones, she tells me. It's very, very frustrating, and I get lonely inside. What do you do when that happens, I ask. So then she acts it out for me with the expressive eyes, face, and voice that break my heart. When my dad is on the phone, I have this conversation in my head. Hello, remember me? Remember who I am? I'm your daughter. You had me because you wanted me, only it doesn't feel like that right now. Right now it feels like all you care about is your phone. And then she adds, but I don't say that because they'll get mad at me. It doesn't help. It feels worse. So it's this the conversation I have with myself. See, this is what happens to us over and over and again. If we are here to worship God, one of the chief ways in which we worship is to love God and to love others. And yet we have normalized distraction in our society, that it is now acceptable to be sitting with someone and say, that text is more important than the conversation I'm having with you. It's okay for me to stop my sentence and respond to this. It's okay for me to stop listening to you and respond to this. I'm going to make the choice that this distraction is better than the one present. And so constantly we're in these conversations with people, whether it's our children, whether it's our friends, whether it's our spouse, we're on the other side of that equation. Somebody's going, hey, remember me? I'm here. Time and time again, we miss that opportunity. We choose the distraction over what is better, right? Think about what that picture would have looked like if Martha had chosen to sit with Mary, to listen with Mary, to worship with Mary. She missed it. She chose something else rather than someone. And it wasn't just that she chose um, Mary, but she missed the opportunity to have with Jesus himself, right? He says, many things you are worried about, but only a few things are needed. In fact, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. What an amazing focus statement, right? That no matter what it is that we go through in life, maybe it's not your phone, maybe it's not your device, but those things that distract us, those moments when we have a choice, we need to remember that there's only one thing that matters. How many times throughout our day do we just pick up that phone one more time to scroll, one more notification to check, and our king is saying, hey, remember me? That time that you're putting into that, how hard is it for you to pray? How hard is it for you to give your attention to me when this other thing is distracting you? There's only one thing you need and it's the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. See, this is the allure of idols. They sound good, they look good, and they work their way into our lives, they work their way into our conversations until they get a grip on us and don't let us go. So it's very simple this morning. Put down your phone. Seriously, put it down. Choose the quietness with a savior. Choose the conversation with the person that's in the room with you. Choose the opportunity to be in the scripture, in prayer. Choose the opportunity to walk outside and meet somebody new. Put down your phone. You're giving seven years of your life to something and you're being transformed into its image. For most of your life, you're just doing this. That is not what you were created to do. Let's choose what's better.
Choose the people in our midst. Let's choose our king and be reminded of this unbelievable truth. You are fearfully and wonderfully made and you are created to worship an almighty God. So let us do so with whole heart, whole mind, soul, and strength. Let's choose what is better. Let's choose our king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We acknowledge that there's so many things in our lives that distract us from you. And, and we admit that all of us have this impulse to use these, these phones and these devices in some capacity, and yet may we be awakened to the many times that they are leading us astray on this gradual road into nothingness. And Father, in those moments, let something ignite within us that says, no, I'm gonna choose what is better. Let us choose the people around us. Let us choose the community that you provided us. And let us be like Mary and sit at your feet and listen. Perhaps that's the response that we need right now, Father. That in the quietness of our hearts, we just need to shut down our thoughts. We need to shut down the things that distract us. And we just need to hear from you. And so I'd ask that for those of us that are here today, if you can acknowledge that before God, if you can surrender whatever it is that you worry about, the, the things that create that anxiety, those things that fill your time, and surrender them and let them go. Not so that we can be free from bad habits, but so that we can be welcomed into the amazing worship of an almighty God. Father, that's what we desire. We desire to worship you as the king that you are. So may we listen to you this morning and make you the cornerstone of our lives. It would be you and you alone that would receive the glory, honor, and praise that you designed within us. We commit this time to you, Father. We commit our hearts to you that we may worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen and amen. I want to invite you now to respond and to sing this word of truth that, that is really the foundation for what we've talked about today. See, that what Mary saw was that Jesus needed to be the cornerstone of all that she was and all who she, who she was designed to be. And so during this time, if there are public decisions you wanna make and you wanna come forward by joining the church, if you need to put your trust in Christ, then we wanna celebrate that with you. If you wanna what, just need prayer, we wanna pray with you. But let us sing the, the power of making Christ this cornerstone and in so doing, surrender the things in our life that distract us from being the God or the people that God designed us to be. So let's stand and sing together. seems to hide his face 
I rest on His unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale. My anchor holds within the veil. Christ Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of all. His oath is covenant, His blood. Support me in the way he then is all my hope and stay he then is all my hope and stay Christ You may be seated. Okay, awesome. Thank you. All right, just a couple of announcements before we dismiss today. Um, now.